Has it occurred to you that the systems we live by are not designed to get results? We pay for procedures instead of outcomes, focusing on emergencies rather than preventing disease and living a healthy lifestyle. For over 25 years, I've taken care of Olympians, Paralympians, A-list actors, and Fortune 1000 companies. If I did not get results, they did not get results. I realized that while powerful people who control the system want to keep the status quo, if I were to educate the masses, you would demand change. So I'm taking the gloves off and going after the systems as they are. Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I'm your host, Ari Gronich. Remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, comment on the end of this show, just so that we can start the conversation and get it going. All right, we've got with us today, Sandy Rodriguez. Sandy has been a translator. She's been a journalist for different, uh, both uh, U.S. and Mexico publications, She's a lifestyle website and Cinco multimedia company, Heart of Hollywood Motion Pictures. So she's done a lot in the industry. I'm going to let her kind of give you a little bit of her background and why she became who she is. Thank you so much, Ari. It's wonderful to be joining you today. I love your show. Well, after that beautiful introduction, uh, let me tell you, yes, you're right that I have been uh, doing many different things for a very long time. Uh, I was involved very directly in journalism. I was one of the editorial coordinators for one of the foremost newspapers in Latin America. That was a newspaper called Reforma, which has been around for um, decades and it's very, very successful. And um, that was something that I was very passionate about journalism and my career specifically. I can't say enough good things about, about the time that I spent at Reforma. But eventually after uh, about a decade and a half, a little bit more than that, I had uh, personal, not professional reasons to uh, decide to move to Los Angeles. So I had to move from Mexico City to Los Angeles, which made sense on a personal level for specific reasons that I will um, later expound uh, upon. But uh, professionally speaking, it might not have been the wisest of choices because I was walking away from a successful career at the very height of my career and moving to a new town where I knew very few people. And more to the point, Ari, this was at a particular point in history where, um, you know, the blogosphere, if we can call it that, was booming and a lot of people were creating free content. Now, of course, uh, you cannot say that there was a, a quality standard across the board, but some people were coming out with extraordinary content, very high quality content for free. So that would certainly did not motivate new employers to say, hey, welcome new person to the fold, welcome. We have plenty of money for you. No, of course not. People were doing that uh, more for fun or to voice opinions at the time. So there really was, um, it was a little bit challenging finding projects to collaborate on. I did find several. 
several interesting projects, several interesting um, companies and people to work with. But this was mostly, let's say, for fun, because it was not what one would call gainful employment. I was happy to do so, but I did need to find something else, which is when I found a totally new um, venue, which, as you mentioned, had to do with translations. I translated a number of books, maybe tens of books, all kinds of business books, uh, self-improvement, medical novels, a number of books of different of different kinds, all of them bestsellers from uh, major publishing houses. Um, and I also eventually fell into a totally new career that was court interpreting. And to be honest, Dari, I adore it. It was a wonderful find. And as you said, I'm doing a lot of things but most of them have something in common, which is language, communication. They all center around uh, that, that specific field. And uh, I consider myself a bilingual communications expert because of that. I'm very well-versed in different forms of communication. And I just love to connect with people such as yourself. That's, that's pretty awesome. So we kind of talked a little bit before the show. And one of the questions that I wanted to talk to you about is translating different languages in my eyes is a completely different mindset. You, ha you, know, you, you get into the culture and the mindset of the language that you're learning or the language that you're translating. So how does that work for you? Because uh, obviously your main other language is Spanish. And so, you know, to me, there's a very distinct culture in the Spanish language and as uh, you know, as a as a culture at whole. So, how does the language influence the mindset and the culture? I think it's very interesting. I think that that can be answered in two different ways. Sorry, for example, if you are say a bilingual or trilingual individual, or you personally know a number of languages. It might be that you learn one at a specific point in your life and the other one at a different point in your life. So your personality can actually vary depending on the language you're using. Let me give you an example. Let's say that as a teenager, you exclusively spoke German. Okay. And then you started learning, say, English as an accomplished adult. I believe that when you personally spoke German, your whole attitude might be more youthful and more playful and more teenage-like than when speaking in English for a number of reasons, not only because it would remind you of a particular point in your life, but also because of the fact that you would have the vocabulary that is in line with that type of stage in life. I actually knew a person once, and this is quite fascinating, that had two distinct personalities. It was so strange. When you heard this person speaking Spanish, this was a woman that was originally, I believe, from California. So when she was speaking Spanish, which was her second language, she was very polite, very proper, uh, a sweetheart. And when speaking English, I would say that she was quite the opposite. Now, I think that that might have been because uh, her Spanish was still not entirely fluent. So normally when you're learning a language, your teachers will teach you the most polite of phrases. 
uh, how do you do? Good morning to you, sir, etc. So normally that is what you would learn. And maybe that is not in line with your personality at all. So definitely that would be something that would be within one individual. So that would be one way to answer the question. Now, on a more general level, on a more culture-wide um, level, it's also quite interesting because, um, of course, I don't know an extreme amount of languages, but it is true that some um, languages have uh, more of, um, let's say, a feel or the possibility, the linguistic possibilities to discuss you as an individual or you as, a, as part of a collective whole. So the words and the language that is spoken might be slightly different. There might not be direct translations for something very specific because some languages might be more focused on the individual than others. Specifically, um, to show you a distinction that has to do with cultural differences uh, from Spanish to English, in English, a construction similar to, um, let's say, uh, Things were said, uh, uh, things happened, people arrived. That kind of construction is relatively common. That is not a natural construct in Spanish. Normally in Spanish, it's a little bit more descriptive so that let's say you cannot be as vague or ambiguous in many cases as you might like to be without sounding very unnatural. That would be an example. But beyond the words themselves, I think that the way a language sounds is also quite fascinating, Ari, because as I was mentioning, I currently work as a court interpreter in the court system. And something that I feel should be addressed is the fact that some languages sound very sweet and very and charming really and some their natural sound at least to our western ears or our, our english-speaking ears sound very grating or violent or rough or in some ways even menacing when that's not the intention at all so i think that it could happen that let's say if you're on a jury and somebody, a, a witness, for instance, is speaking a language that sounds like that, that sounds violent. Maybe you might assume, oh, this person is clearly a super aggressive individual. And that might not be the case at all. He might be saying something super sweet, like I was not there that day, or you know, something that is in no way uh, menacing, but it might be perceived as something a little bit more violent. I actually had um, a similar experience uh, not in, in recent years, some languages, uh, for instance, certain Eastern European languages and certainly German and some, some languages of that nature from those uh, parts of the world sound a little bit aggressive to us, both English speakers and Spanish speakers and certainly people that might speak Italian or French or some of the sweeter sounding uh, Latin um, derived languages. So, um, I met this uh, uh, man, a neighbor, and I thought, oh my goodness, he must be in a bad mood because he was speaking in what I perceived to be tremendously aggressive. He was speaking English, yes, but in a way that was, to me, rather curt. But then I learned, I heard him speak his native tongue and I thought, no, it's just that he has an accent and his natural tongue sounds very, you know, like he's cutting you off, like he's being a little bit aggressive. 
That's the thing. He's not being mean. He's not being rude. It's just the way his accent sounds. So that's something very important to keep in mind. And it works the other way around. Somebody with a sweeter sounding natural accent might be saying the most horrifying of things and you wouldn't really get that, right? It's just a situation where the sound is very different. Absolutely. You know, it's funny to me because I look at things like the Bible and the Torah mm -hmm. And the translation, the things that get lost in translation between Old Aramaic and then Hebrew and then Latin and then English, let's say that that's the, the only few languages that, you know, came in between. And then I think of things like the game telephone that we used to play when we were a kid where you whisper in somebody's ear a phrase and it goes around the room and then you find out what it has become when when you get to the you know the other side and what gets lost in translation it's not just the words that get lost it's the tone and the emphasis of word and the place where you would put a comma if, you know in, in languages where there may not be a comma or a separation of of those words, right? Or like in Hebrew, there's no vowels and Aramaic, there's no vowels. And so you have to interpret what the word is and the sound and the vowel and, you know, before you can get it. So what gets lost in translation between cultures is really prevalent right now in our society. You know, we have <clears throat> many different cultures that do not speak the same language, even within the English language. And I think that if, if we began to try to translate the languages and understand what's actually being said, we may have a different interpretation of the culture that it came from. Do you find that that might be the case as well? I think you are completely right. I think that's completely accurate. Um, in many cases, the issue lies in the fact that there are no words to say what needs to be said. For instance, in English, you might say, I saw somebody screaming and shouting and yelling. Okay, in Spanish, there's just one word to describe all three things. So if you were to write a paragraph that included all of those three things, your Spanish translator might be at a loss because they simply could not, uh, you know, maybe used all three words in a sentence for emphasis. It would be very difficult for a Spanish interpreter to work around that, for instance. And I've had the experience, you're mentioning the Bible specifically, but I've had the experience of translating many books of many different styles. All of them have been bestsellers for one specific reason, so, uh, reason Ari. Publishing houses only request translations of bestselling material. That's the only thing. Because of um, financial constraints, that's the only way that it can be done. So it's very, it's a very high level of responsibility for a translator. They need to do a very good job because this is a book that is known to be a bestseller and it will, it must become a bestseller in the language you're translating it into. But it becomes um, difficult in this sense. There, it's not so much a language thing, but more of a tradition of writing or a writing style that is used in different cultures. In general, I would say that writing in English, be it business correspondence, a book, or even uh, something as, as 
extremely detailed as the Bible, I would say that overall, it's a very straightforward language. If that's the way that it that it's used, it's, it's the writing tradition, that's the way it simply is done. Whereas in Spanish, things tend to be very roundabout. That is especially true in business correspondence, but it's also very true in literature. So if somebody were to do uh, an exact um, translation of a document, a contract, a book from Spanish to English, it might appear to be that it's poorly done. If you were to go like literal, if you were to do this very literally, because the, the English reader would say, well, that does not sound natural. Certainly that must be wrong. This person must not be very experienced. So that is what would happen if you were to translate precisely what is being said. That is also why uh, when interpreting, uh, we are trained to translate not so much word by word because that would tend to happen. It would sound very choppy and strange, but rather to go by ideas or by meanings. So it might be, let's say a saying such as I'm thinking, uh, the early bird catches the worm or a saying of that nature. That is not the way you would say it in Spanish. It would sound very strange and the other way around as well. So you would find an equivalent saying something that has the same meaning and use that instead. Because if you do try to go word by word, it becomes very complicated. And specifically what you were mentioning in the case of, of the Bible, how it can become like a game of telephone. Well, in the case of the Bible, certainly because there are many translations, but even if we were to go um, on a smaller scale, let's say that you gave me something to translate to Spanish and I did that, but then you told me, hey, you know, I want you to do it, to give it back to me in English again, because now I want it back in English. And I had lost your original copy, okay, I would have to do it again from scratch. And it might not be identical to your first, um, your original text, because of the simple reason that there are so many ways to express the same thing, synonyms, that it might not be identical. It would be the same meaning, but the specific words might be different. And in a case as important as the Bible, that causes problems because the Bible, much like say a contract has, I mean, every individual word is scrutinized and people might uh, assign a very specific meaning to the choice of word. So even something as minor as a comma, as minor as a semicolon, as minor as a uh, uh, preposition might actually change the meaning dramatically. And that's why uh, translation uh, involves a huge degree of responsibility, certainly. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The, the reason I, I always bring up the Bible when it comes to translations is just a, a, a minor one, but there's, you know, that saying about Jesus having walked on the water. Well, that, that word on wasn't in the language. It was by so didn't walk on the water, walked by the water. And if you, I mean, just those two words alone change the meaning so drastically of what's being said. And so therefore the misinterpretation that gets misinterpreted over and over and over again throughout, you know, history and telling stories becomes something so much larger than maybe it was. And, you know, I, I look at how does that conflate up? And then how can I relate that to current society of, of in which language has become 
so interestingly separative, you know, there was, there's, there's each borough, for instance, of New York City has a different accent. I yes. used to be able to tell if somebody was from the Bronx, from, the que from Queens, from Brooklyn, from Manhattan, I could tell just by their accent where they were from. And then you go, let's say to the South in Tennessee versus Louisiana versus Texas, very, you know, different, or, or Atlanta, very different accents, very different wording and inflections and, and so on. And how much misinterpretation of things get said, right? And then how is it that we are separate as a society so much and so divided and divisive? And would it behoove us to shift so that we all have kind of one language or is it better to really understand the language that the person is speaking? You know, wh wh where, where do we find that balance so that we can kind of come together as a society? And I'll just take it one last step further because I know you've done medical books. So <clears throat> I believe that alternative healthcare and Western healthcare have a language issue. They don't speak the same language because they weren't trained in the same things. And so the language that one speaks is completely different. And if we learn to speak to the language of the person that we're trying to influence, we'll get better outcomes because we'll have more understanding. So I'm gonna leave it there, but that's just kind of like the process in my mind of one of the issues that maybe has a solution so that we can bring ourselves back together versus divided so separately. I think, Harry, that that's a very interesting point that you're touching upon about how language can cause a rift. And I, I agree that that's something that, that should be addressed. I also think, Ari, that even within one same language, people can have many different interpretations of one specific sentence. I'm, I remember reading about a situation in which um, an armed officer um, heard somebody tell an armed uh, person, give it to him. Now that, uh, the, the officer assumed that the person that was being told give it to him was also armed. Uh, in reality, that other person didn't have a gun, they had a wallet. And when their friend said give it to him, the officer assumed that, that the person had a gun and give it to him meant shoot the police officer. So obviously the officer had that understanding. When in reality, the friend was saying, give it to him, like give the man your wallet, show him it's a wallet. So it was one same sentence that can be interpreted like give it to him, like kill him or give it to him, hand him your wallet. That is one same sentence that can be interpreted or taken in two different ways. Uh, I've, um, I've had that happen in, um, in court situations, for instance, in domestic violence situations, in Spanish, one same sentence might mean he broke up with me or he, well, he said he was going to break up with me or he said he was going to finish me off, which as you can see has a tremendously different connotation. So yes, certainly it's very important to, to 
go a little bit beyond. Even if you say, I heard this with my very own ears, you need to understand that you might not be understanding what the person meant. Uh, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think certainly I'm discussing situations where you may, might not have time to give people the benefit of the doubt, but let's say in everyday circumstances, it's, it's very important to, to take things, um, break them down a little. Maybe we hear something or we feel that we are being told something that might be um, insulting or disparaging or something that we might not want to hear, but that might not be what the person meant at all. And it can certainly cause tremendous rifts. It's quite interesting that sometimes uh, you were talking about how, uh, how many divisions can be formed, uh, especially now that, that people have very extreme opinions about things. I've, I've had uh, this experience. Two people might listen to one specific political speech or one specific speech from say a businessman and everybody hears what they want to hear. They might kind of pick up on the one sentence that confirms their bias, confirms whatever they wanted to think about that person and completely ignore the rest. As somebody that is very moderate, because I believe myself to be, I find it very interesting. People on, on both extremes might hear one very same thing and have totally different takeaways. So that's also an important thing to consider that even if we say, I heard something, I heard it myself, yes, but you might hear it in a way that is very specific based on your previous perceptions, on your previous beliefs, on your previous biases. And it's it's quite interesting. It really is interesting. I don't know if you've um, ever had um, an experience where you, um, where you were part of a conversation and later when discussing that conversation with other people that were also there, it seems to be that everybody came out with a different understanding. That yeah, absolutely, I mean, that happens all the time, every, you know, every time, just like if you get in a car accident and you have 15 witnesses, you have 15 completely different stories of what, what they saw happen. And so here's, here becomes a question. The soundbite culture is all about taking things out of context, because if you're only playing the soundbite and not what surrounded it, you are taking it out of context. And then as journalism has progressed, unfortunately, the way it has, the commentators who are supposed to be the journalists, which report what happens, end up having their own bias that they start commentating on this soundbite that they've taken out of context. And therefore, the people who listen to those journalists are only getting a soundbite taken out of context and an opinion based on a predisposed bias, regardless of sides, it's either way. And so the question becomes like, how do we, how do we solve this as, as a society? Because to me, journalism used to be report the facts. Once the facts are reported, uh, a commentator might have an opinion about what happened, but they're gonna say, this is what happened. And then now here's my opinion of what happened versus here is a little piece out of context of what somebody said, you know? So how do we solve this so that we can get back to 
believing in our media, believing that the things that are being said are not agenda driven, are not anything other than here's what happened. That's a fascinating question. And I think you're absolutely right in that sound bites are definitely what is being used most these days. I think that there is a reason for that. And that is that we have shorter attention spans. There's that. And also there are just so many media outlets out there that they need to grab your attention. And a soundbite is basically the, let's say equivalent to clickbait. The moment you hear something uh, short, you might say, oh, that's interesting. Let's have a look at what's going on with that. So it does grab your attention. There's a, a, a reason for that. And not only to create uh, you know, conflict, it, there's, a, there's an actual reason you want to drive traffic to your site, to your channel, to your newscast, to your um, media outlet, whichever it may be. So journalists uh, and many people these days do focus on sound bites, clickbait, and anything that might sound shocking enough to grab eyeballs, grab attention. Certainly that's, that's something that is done. Now, certainly as a society or as a person that consumes uh, information, be it online or by any other means, we need to be a little bit less naive and understand what the purpose of these sound bites is. And the purpose is the same thing as with clickbait. It's to cause us to focus and say, oh, and pay attention to just, just grab our attention. That's our main focus. Certainly sometimes they are, like you said, very agenda driven. If uh, a specific news outlet has something in mind, they can certainly cherry pick specific uh, parts of a, of a political speech or a, a speech given by any individual to advance their agenda and say, see, I told you so. He said this, she said this, they say that, certainly, yes. But we need to be, um, as consumers, a little bit aware of what's going on that so that we are not uh, easily swayed or, I mean, certainly it's it's fun to, to say, oh, you know what that person said? I mean, it's fun, it's interesting, it's attention grabbing, but we need to understand that there is an agenda behind that. And the agenda might either be to uh, promote um, a specific person or a specific policy or have that person canceled or make them become disliked. Uh, or the agenda might be something as, as innocent as simply driving more traffic to a specific website or, or news outlet. But in any case, as a consumer, we need to know that there is a purpose. Much like what happens when we see commercials. They're fun, they're entertaining, some are very beautifully produced, they might have very cool music. But we know, I mean, that I mean, we take them at face value. I don't think that that anybody says, oh, I know that this product that I saw on TV must be fantastic because I saw it on a commercial. No, I mean, I think we're mature enough to understand there's uh, there are interests in place. So we need to understand that a soundbite is a soundbite. It's something taken entirely out of context. Now, the other thing now, how can we go back to days of your, okay, here's the thing. I do agree that in the past, Long form articles were more the norm than they are now. More reporting on facts was done than, than is done now. However, I do think that at least uh, in, as far as I can remember, and I'm sure that this was the case even before, um, there's a journalistic uh, saying, which is, if it bleeds, it bleeds, which basically means things that are shocking, things that are bad, things that are negative, we want those. 
A human interest story might be fun and fine. And occasionally, you know, a sprinkling of that is certainly something everybody wants heartwarming, you know, over the holidays, of course. But let's say on a normal day-to-day -day basis, what used to make front pages was always the terrible news, the terrible, the violent, the bloody beheadings, the killings, the terrors. So that is also not entirely accurate. Not to say that it didn't happen, because surely it did, especially if facts are being reported and there are witnesses supporting this and there, there's no denying that these are facts, but it does give you a slightly skewed perception of reality, because there are many things going on at any given time that are just not reported on. That's one thing. Um, for, for many reasons. Again, I would think that it's similar because if you just uh, walk past a newsstand like we used to do in the past and the front page said something like uh, fireman rescues kitty out of a tree, sure, it's interesting, but it might not be front page news. Whereas if it's something horrible like killing mass murder, that tends to tr attract attention a little bit more. So we also need to be conscious of that as media consumers, even if we do enjoy the longer form reporting more, knowing that it might skew toward the negative, but that's not, not the whole picture, definitely. Gotcha. So one of the things that I heard you say is that the attention span has gone down so much. And this has been something that I've heard repeated over and over and over and over and over again. And my question is, is it the attention span or is it the expectation? Because I know I watch my kids and they'll get onto YouTube and watch hours of training in a thing that they're interested in, whether it's, you know, finances or um, politics. I mean, they'll, they'll consume a mass amount of information and they seem to have extremely long attention spans. And so I hear us say, well, the attention span has dropped. It's seven seconds now. The attention span is seven. We're almost lower than a goldfish. I mean, we have no attention. Is this just an expectation that they're trying to feed us? Because I've never experienced having a seven second attention span. I, you know, my attention span is however long I'm interested in a subject. If I'm interested in something, I can look at it for hours and hours and hours and hours and time disappears completely. And if I'm not interested, I probably am going to be off subject, you know, pretty quickly, but typically it's not seven seconds. And so I, I, I think that that might be something the media is feeding me instead of something that's actually real. So can we address that a little bit? Because you repeated it. So obviously it's something you've heard of, but I disagree completely. I think that they're pandering. I think you have a very valid point, Ari. And I think that both things can be simultaneously true in this sense. I think what is meant, or at least the way I perceive it or the way I uh, mean it uh, is in the sense that when making a selection, the attention span is indeed, at least in my experience, very limited because there are almost unlimited options and you only have limited time. For example, uh, let's say that I want to take a course in, I want to take a guitar tutorial, let's say online. 
okay, certainly once I find the tutorial that I like, I can certainly uh, focus on that for a good long time, hours at a time, days at a time, I'll be in the flow, I will love it, time will just pass by, that, that is very true. However, I might be bombarded with 50 different tutorials and then I'll start getting emails saying I have a better tutorial and then I'll start getting flyers in the mail and it'll be like, okay, let me see. Okay, does this instructor look talented enough? Uh, no. Okay, does this one look like they might capture my attention? No. So just making the decision is where it has to be like in a split second almost. Maybe, um, maybe that's just my experience. I agree that when you do like something and when you found something that you like, uh, you will focus. But let me give you an example. I uh, like reading both physical books and electronic books. What I often do is that I download samples of what can I say, maybe 30 books at a time, because I'm interested in many topics. But to be honest, Dari, I open one and if my attention is not captured by paragraph two or three, it's bye. Then next one, bye. Eventually I find one that I like, then I purchase that one. And of course I will delve into that. I will spend a, an entire afternoon and I will be delighted. But I think that I really don't have a lot of time or I'm not giving them a chance beyond seconds, to be honest. Once I find something that I like, I might even become very loyal and follow the author or follow the, the tutor or follow whoever uh, I decided on right. online and I might subscribe to their newsletter. But just the decision-making, I do think it's almost like a split second thing. Right, so that sounds to me like discernment versus attention span. And you're discerning am I interested in what I'm just reading or what I'm just hearing, or am I not interested in it at all? It's not something that strikes a fancy. That to me is discernment versus attention span. And like I said, I think that, I think the media perpetuates that myth as a pandering and an excuse to be able to show a soundbite out of context and say, this is what it means. And oh, by the way, you know, you don't have an attention span to even follow it. So I'm going to go on to the next soundbite and then I'll tell you what it means because you won't have it. You, you won't, you, you audience won't have the attention span because we collectively don't anymore to actually listen to this soundbite and then research what it was actually, what was actually around it and find out what it is. So I'm going to do your work for you. And what I, you know, it's funny what I tell my son when he um, wants to, to, he's seven years old, when he wants to go on and, and, you know, watch YouTube and do all these things, I tell him you're borrowing your imagination from somebody else. And in the case of the media, you're borrowing your knowledge from somebody else. And then claiming it as your own because it, it fits your belief system versus actually knowing if that information is correct or not correct, if it's in context, out of context, what it really meant, what the person was really trying to say, what that policy really is. You know, <clears throat> I think it's a way of us basically abdicating our responsibility, our civic responsibility to learn and know things and just regurgitate the, the things that the nearest person who believes in what we believe in is saying. And, and then the news and the media say, oh, well, we can use this to push our agenda on 
the people who believe in what we're believing in and we'll tell them what they want to hear and what they, you know, the, the pieces of what we heard that we know will trigger them the most. And to me, that's not really journalism. And so that's kind of where I want to pick up on this is that's not journalism to me. That's opinion. And there used to be an opinion column in the newspapers. I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be. That was the purpose of the opinion column. There was the news and then there was the opinion. And um, and I find that that all news is pretty much non-factual opinion nowadays. I think you make very, very valid points. I completely agree with many of the things that you're saying. I have seen certainly opinion columns recently, but you know, you're right in that they blur in with normal columns these days because, because you're absolutely right. Most of the, um, let's say, reporting does indeed include commentary, personal opinions, or at least it attempts to sway in one way or another. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think you're absolutely accurate. Um, I also think, Ari, that um, what you're saying about these things getting a little bit mixed up and not having a clear distinction between facts and opinions has even gone a step further because in the past, let's say you had your news and you also had your entertainment news or your celebrity news. Now these days, entertainment news is the news. Celebrity news is the news. They are very much entwined. So it's important to also remember that in many cases, what we might call news these days has um, not only the, or not necessarily the objective or the goal of informing, but rather of entertaining. And it not might not be as accurate as one would expect it to be. So you really do need to take everything that you see with a grain of salt, definitely. Absolutely. So how do you, how do you think that people who rely on the information that's coming out of that box to be accurate, how do, how do those people gain the discernment to know is this correct information? Is it not? Especially when you can't really Google things anymore because I mean, other than being overwhelming, we we've seen you, if you look up on Google one phrase and you look it up on Yahoo, the same phrase or on Bing the same phrase or on DuckDuckGo the same phrase, you're going to get completely different set of responses and, and results. And so how does somebody get to a place, you know, where they actually know what's happening and there is no ambiguity of what's going on because they're looking at news and facts versus opinions and hyperbole. I think that it's almost impossible to ascertain with any degree of certainty that a certain thing is a reality simply because often there are many ways to be reality. But for instance, one, one piece of advice that I would definitely give people, sometimes I see news uh, stories and I'm using air quotes because they're more like, yeah, like commentary on something that happened. Let's say that there might be a clickbait he headline saying, so-and-so said this and that. And then it says, during his speech, this person said this thing. Okay, what you can do is say, why don't I just go and watch the speech? 
you can simply Google the speech specifically and listen for yourself and see exactly what the person said, what he was, um, what words he was using, his demeanor, um, what the context was. You can get a better understanding if you actually go to the source material and see what was said rather than hearing somebody uh, have a conversation or say something about what was said. This uh, avoids what you were saying a moment ago about things seeming like the old game of telephone, rather than saying, okay, this person said that this person said that the other person said this thing, just watch the original thing. I think that would be one, one possibility. The other um, thing that I would definitely recommend is this. Uh, when you personally have a specific uh, opinion on an issue. For whatever reason, algorithms in your social media, they will become like an echo chamber. You will see a lot of information that just confirms whatever you already believed in. So it makes sense to me to occasionally, just to see what's out there, step outside of your comfort zone and see what the opposite side of the continuum has to say even if it's just uh, for informational purposes, just to see what's going on. And you might find that you actually resonate with some of the ideas from another group of people that you had never even thought to consider because you were stuck in your echo chamber, which is what your own social media was feeding you based off your own personal likes. So I think that that, that is valid also. Um, I don't think that it's, possible to say regarding any specific issue, I know if this is good or bad with a hundred percent degree of certainty, also because everything benefits someone and hurts someone else. I see that often not to get tremendously political, but for instance, when people need to vote on propositions, normally every proposition has an upside and has a downside. Now you might say, well, the upside is more important to me than the downside, so I'm voting for this thing. Okay, great, you voted for this thing, but saying yes to this means that the budget for something else might need to be cut. What if that other thing is also important to you? Okay, well, it's almost important, it's almost impossible to have a very clear picture of everything and its implications for everyone at all times. You can only do the best you can, I believe, and that means taking everything at face value when it comes to commentary, because commentary is commentary. Everybody has their own opinion. The best that you can do is find the source material and focus on that. Certainly you cannot be present in certain private press conferences and such, but many things these days especially are readily found and almost instantly, if they're not being live streamed, they're surely being uploaded quickly enough so that you can get at least a better understanding. If you hear a soundbite or see a clickbait he headline that you find a little bit alarming, it really does serve you well to go back to the source material, listen to the speech, look at what was going on, what was the thing that was being said, and see if you still agree with what was said. I've seen, um, let me give you examples. One time I saw um, uh, a very shocking cover discussing a certain ingredient in food. And it said, uh, such and such ingredient, how much harm can it possibly do? Therefore implying that it was terrible. I'm guessing that a lot of people walked past the newsstand and automatically made up their mind that this was a horrible ingredient, deadly, terrible, very, very damaging. But I actually bought the magazine, I read the article calmly, and experts weighed in and the, actual answer to the question on the cover was, 
Not at all. It's a very helpful ingredient. It's healthy. It's fine. There's no problem with the ingredient at all. But the way the cover uh, headline was phrased really gave people a totally different opinion. That was clearly meant to attract attention. But in looking at it a little bit more deeply and then going and doing a little research on the people giving their opinions, as it turned out, I now believe that particular ingredient to be perfectly fine. I have no issues with it. But I'm sure that people that do focus on the cover might be very hesitant to give it a try. So that's that's something also to to understand why people are using headlines. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Your your mic volume uh, did a little muffle a little bit, so just letting you know. Um, so the, here here here's a question. Since you're you're not a journalist at the moment, <laughs> you're doing the court reporting. I can ask you this question. Are there any news organizations, media organizations these days that you trust information from? Let me tell you, when here's the thing, and it might sound like something not everybody can do, but I find that when I want to see accurate reporting about Mexico, I might go to American sources. If I want to read accurate information about the US, I might go to Mexican sources, German sources, other different sources, because they tend not to have a particular interest in what is going on their agenda. I mean, especially if it's, especially when it's a country that really has no specific interest, they have nothing to gain or lose by, by advancing a specific agenda. It tends to be more trustworthy. That's what I try to do. And for the most part, I believe that it has worked well. That's interesting because, for instance, when I was in Athens during the 2004 Paralympics, that was right when the Bush-Gore campaign was happening. And I would watch the U.S. version of CNN in, in my Greek hotel. And mm -hmm. then I'd watch, uh, you know, the Greek version of the same news. And it was completely, completely different. There was There was not even a a semblance of what was being said on them that that equaled the same thing, right? They're very, very different um, interpretations of those debates. And what's interesting about it is, again, just that saying that I just said was interpretation would imply a language barrier, right? And so that language barrier, that lost in translation, that personal interpretation, all of those things have kind of come together in this perfect storm of leaving, at least in the United States, the fake media, you know, everybody's all over this. The news is not real. And while I can absolutely see that being the case <laughs> and and that being a truth i think that if if somebody were to get a little bit more into the weeds of it they'll they'll find where that truth is but and this is really important for the audience to get is they need you need and i'm saying need like really strenuously you need to immediately prior to reading or listening or hearing or consuming, take account of your predisposed bias. 
take account of what you already believe is true or not true. And so that you can come into it with a fresh, open mindset, because otherwise you're only going to hear from that preconceived bias. Isn't that right? I absolutely agree. No matter what you think, well, you can see it even in scientific study. You can um, infer anything from a study that confirms what you already wanted to, to hear, what, what you already thought was true. Um, that is something to always keep in mind, especially when reading statistics or when seeing numbers. A lot of the times the public sees numbers, a study, statistics, research, uh, the words MD thrown around or anything that sounds highly scientific or highly um, statistics um, backed. So they might assume, okay, those are facts. Why? Because I see the numbers, I see figures. Again, it's not that numbers are necessarily massaged or in any way faked, but any study or any anything you want to prove can be um, proven simply by using the right data. And there's always data in support of anything. So I, I think your suggestion to be very aware of previous biases and beliefs, to be very important so that people can come into new information with a fresh set of eyes, just seeing what's out there and not being closed off to information that might contradict their previous beliefs, absolutely. Right, yeah, you know, it's funny. Long time ago when I was really interested in what was happening on the news, which I, I'm really not anymore because it, it got too crazy, but. I would, I would do things like I would listen to Rush Limbaugh and I would listen to Dennis Prager. And then I would also listen to people on the other side of that puzzle, right? Um, I worked for the LA Times actually selling door to door when I was a teen. Mm -hmm. I had people tell me, you know, I get my news from Rush Limbaugh, right? That was what they would tell me. And I'm like, okay, well, this is an interesting thing to take note of in my 15-year-old mind is that they don't get the news from the LA Times because it somehow has its bias in its echo chamber versus Rush Limbaugh's echo chamber versus, I guess, a different newspapers. So I took note of that, that bias uh, at that age. And <clears throat> so I, I listened and watched I would w watch Glenn Beck and I'd watch Rachel Maddow and Keith Oberman. I'd watch, you know, CNN. I, I, I would go through different belief systems all in one day on the same information. And I would look at it and, and analyze it as, okay, this is the same 15 minute soundbite. So to, you know, or 15 second soundbite. And this is, three or four or five different interpretations of that soundbite. And so I would go back and say, okay, what did what happened around that soundbite? And I would take that uh, into what I was doing because I really wanted to understand. That was like the whole purpose of, of wasting my time in, in other people's business, which is what news is, is other people's business for the most part. So I'm wasting my time in other people's business. <laughs> And so I, I figured if I'm going to do that, I, I might as well learn what they want and want, want to know, what they want me to know. And uh, 
And so I found it interesting because I've never fallen into an echo chamber. And during this really crazy time that we're living in, I'll, I'll have an, an opinion about something based on my research and knowledge, and somebody will uh, assign a label to me because of it. I've been assigned as a liberal snowflake, and I've been assigned as a Trump supporter, and I'm not either of those things, <laughs> you know? Um, if you're one thing, you can't be for another thing. And if you're for this thing, you can't be for that thing because you have, you, you know, it's like, it's like this, this world has lost its ability to consume information, critically think, have some common sense based on what they're thinking, and then apply things like a butterfly effect. What are, what does that action mean? And what is the action, the consequence that those actions mean. And so I blame, I blame the media and the fact that we deregulated in the late 70s, early 80s, our media and our news that was meant to be a nonprofit for the, the, the stations. Like we gave you the FCC regulation to allow you to communicate. And the thing that we asked is, that your news hour was not for profit because it had to be just no news. And we deregulated that, stopped it in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, and then look what's happened since then. And so th that next question is, how do we get back to a place where we consume this information and we regulate it maybe so that it is, here's the facts, you know, like Dragnet used to be, just the facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts. I think that would not be possible without some sort of um, cash infusion from some source that had really zero interest in advancing one agenda over another. But quite frankly, I can't see how that would come to pass. And it is a vicious cycle, not to sound like tremendously defeatist, but let me give you an example of something that happened in Mexico. Um, this might have happened, I'm trying to remember, it might have been maybe not 10 years ago, but it was, it was a while back. Okay, so what happened was that a new uh, president came into office, a very polarizing president, tremendously so, even more so than President Trump, like tremendously polarizing. And one of the first things that this person said was, I'm going to cut down on government spending on things that are um, unimportant or inconsequential. For instance, I'm no longer going to advertise in newspapers. Now, I think that as a whole, as a society, you would think, well, it makes perfect sense for the government not to place ads in newspapers because I mean, A, they're already in power, B, that would make the you know, newspapers more prone to speak well of that government, regardless of their own personal feelings or the facts. Um, it sounds like a very good idea. So what happened was that indeed uh, the government overnight, they cut down all spending on newspaper ads, which sounds like a good idea. But the next thing that happened was that newspapers said, hey, 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 we have no budget. And they had to slash their workforce in half nearly overnight, leading to uh, more uh, 
let's say, more space for unpaid uh, people that like to offer commentary and such. So it ended up being, one would assume that that would lead to a more transparent or a more uh, objective situation, but it really did not, I don't think. So it's a, it's a very hard situation to solve. I think that the only way for um, a specific media outlet to be entirely free of of biases beyond the normal biases that an individual reporter might have, just to speak as a, as a media outlet as a whole, it would need its money to come from, let's say, a private investor that was completely um, disinterested in, in any, you know, somebody that was not, that had no uh, specific feelings toward one or, or another thing. Because if you're being funded by a candidate, a party, a group, uh, a lobby, obviously that's going to be reflected in one way or another. That's, that's a fact. And I mean, not even getting into political things. Let's think about something uh, more on the soft news side. Let's say that you're a fashion magazine and you have ads coming in from a certain uh, fragrance manufacturer or a certain designer, obviously you're going to feature them more heavily and more favorably in your pages. That's just a fact. Uh, and the only way to do uh, away with that would be to have an ad-free experience. I don't know, it would have to be a model where money was coming in from someone or some source that really was unrelated to what you were doing. And that's that's hard to achieve, definitely. I, I think that would be the only way to go about that, Ari. I don't see how it could be done otherwise. Okay, so <clears throat> unfortunately that, that viewpoint is a rather bleak viewpoint for yes. the world because a world that doesn't, can't trust uh, the facts is gonna end soon, right? The, the country, and, and we, we've seen this in pretty much every empire that has begun to do what we've begun to do is that it's not very long before the collapse, before it gets you know destroyed as is and has to be rebuilt. So it's, that's a pretty bleak view, especially if in a 24 hour news cycle, we can't dedicate four of the hours to just the facts and the other 20 can be money-making hours, but those four hours, maybe one every quarter, so to speak, of, of the, the day is here's the facts. This is what happened. This is what bill was passed. This is what that bill means for, you know, in actuality, this is what it does. No commentary. This is what, for instance, like people who don't like Trump, have no idea the amazing things that he's done for the things that they themselves would want done, right? So for instance, uh, there's been more arrests in human trafficking than any other president in history, right? And this is a fact. It's not, doesn't assign a morality <laughs> to this president, but in this period of time, there was something that he did that allowed the police and the agencies to uncover and go after more of those people. And there's been more arrests in that thing. That's a fact. So without commentary, you can't say that and have people know that who don't like Trump and who listen to news that's against Trump, just like in 
on the Fox side or on the on the side that is all for Trump, you may not hear some of the things that he's done that would say rip apart the natural park system, right? <laughs> and that attacks nature and the environment. You may not even hear about it, even if that's something you're interested in because you're interested in this kind of predisposed bias. And so that's where I'm saying, I don't think that it's as dire as you, as you made it out to be. I don't think that we need to have them make no money or get these, you know, this thing. I think we need to regulate that four hours a day on a 24 hour news cycle, you must tell the facts and have no commentary and no opinion about the facts. And the other 20 hours, you could talk all you want about what you think of it. But for those four hours, you need to tell the facts. For this set of, this section of the newspaper, it needs to be facts. For this thing that you're, you know, like if you're a journalist and you're telling news, there used to be this thing that journalists had to do, which was verify their sources, right? They verify the- Correct, yes print something that was not factual. And that has absolutely shifted and changed. And I don't think that that's a money conversation. I think that's a morality conversation for a country and, and a regulation issue, just like pouring toxic waste out and making the, the consequence, say a million dollars when a company is making $15 million a day to dump their waste right? That, that, that incentive that I'd rather pay the million dollars and dump and not spend the 15 million. Well, okay, but you're still dumping the toxic waste instead of not doing that. So that's a regulatory issue, in my opinion, versus I don't think it has to be as dire as, as what you had said. Do you, do you think, think it would work? I think it would work fabulously. I think that would be an excellent idea if it would indeed be implemented. And I also wanted to touch upon something that you just mentioned, which is that in the past, verifying sources was absolutely necessary. It wasn't uh, optional. And now it's rarely done. I think, Ari, that uh, I agree that it's not a money issue in that specific regard. I would venture to say that beyond being a morality issue, it has to do with uh, logistics. These days, when websites are rushing to have breaking news up on their websites, to be honest, I think that the rush to be first causes a lot of sloppy reporting and not uh, you know, reporting sources or even knowing if something is accurate. I think there's also that thing. Now you might say, well, but even back in the day, even in print newspapers, of course you're also racing against the clock. Yes, but not to this degree, Ari. I think that this is a little extreme now that people want to be the one breaking the news. And in fact, it's a little crazy because if you're the website breaking the news, you might say something that's totally off and immediately, 10 other websites will report on what you reported. So now it's 10 different outlets making the same exact mistake over and over and over. And it can be a factual mistake. It can be uh, something that's misquoted. I've seen that happen time and time again. I, I think certainly there's an element of morality, not putting something out there that not you're not sure about, but I think there's a lot of pressure. And uh, that's something that that is a direct consequence of the immediacy these days. So then it gets to kind of part of my favorite topic, which is bullies um, and, uh, and the bullies of the system and why we allow 
the bullies to win and, um, and do things that are completely against our own self-interest. So we do things completely against our own self-interest on a regular basis because we're letting the bullies win. And it seems like in what you're saying, we're letting the bullies win instead of having integrity. Journalistic integrity used to be extremely important and now it's completely unimportant. Um, and, and so how do we get back to teaching, training, and then learning this integrity piece and then saying, if you as the bully, as my boss, as the person above me telling me to do this the wrong way, don't stop telling me to do it the wrong way and allow me to keep my integrity, right? Then I'm going to report you as the person stopping me. Like we, this, this whole thing of we allow the system to be broken because we're afraid of it, because we, you know, are, have, has everybody lost their freaking minds is what I, is what I think of when I hear stuff like that, because who cares who's first? If you're not accurate, you're not accurate. That means that you're losing your integrity. That means that you can't be trusted. That means that you're a journalist that has nothing to say to me because you're lying, right? And so therefore, <laughs> when is it that you're going to stand up for your integrity to the system that's bullying you? And this goes the same thing to the doctors who are in the system who are looking at it going, I am morally injured as a doctor because I'm being told to treat patients in a way that goes completely against my training, my background, my knowledge, and my belief in loving my, my patients and treating them with healing and, not, and doing no harm. So they need to stay, stand up. It's their responsibility in the position of, and this is really hard to say this, in the position of being the victim of the bully of the system, it's their job to stand up and get loud because silence is a bully's best friend. And the only way you stop a bully is by standing up, getting loud and exposing them to the masses, right? So when does a journalist report on their boss? When does a journalist say enough is enough? This is what I'm being told to say. And this is what is really true. How do we get back to that kind of integrity of a nation, of a citizenry that stops the bullies from being bullies and says to them, no more? I think that relies definitely on individual journalists. And certainly there are many, many of them with uh, very high morals, definitely a, a sense of pride in their craft. I mean, I certainly know a number of them, but I think that these people gravitate toward media outlets that are less prone to requesting crazier things. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about specific people. If they were asked by their um, website, yes, you need to be the first one. If they were not sure about what they were saying, uh, they simply would not do it. Again, let me give you, um, again, not to speak super highly of my old employer because I used to work there, but for instance, we would never 
let's say that we were going to be published tomorrow and we were going to report on something minor to take place later tonight. For example, let's say that tonight there was going to be a concert. This is something very inconsequential. We couldn't write, a concert was held yesterday, even though it stands to reason that tomorrow's news should say a concert was held yesterday because it hadn't actually happened yet. What if it was canceled? What if there was a fire? What if there was an earthquake? What if there was something that stopped it? We would not even go, uh, we would not even venture to say that that was a fact because it hadn't happened yet. And we did want to make sure that everything that we uh, actually printed was indeed accurate at as best we could. I mean, of course, sometimes there are things that just slip out of people's hands, but as far as humanly possible, we did make a commitment to that. And everything that was published went through so many sets of eyes, sorry, that you wouldn't even imagine. There were tremendous controls in place. For instance, I was an editorial director and to be honest, nobody made any decision alone at any level nothing. Everything was first discussed in weekly meetings, then discussed again in several daily meetings. Everything went to a number of sets of eyes from the reporter himself, then a co-editor, then an editor, then myself, then possibly a director. Ever, there were so many filters, sorry, that although that made us a little bit less nimble as a smaller website, it guaranteed that I mean, any inaccuracy would be very rare. Whereas I think that in a situation like an understaffed website, you have a lot of things that make it easy for inaccuracies to slip by um, time, like I was mentioning, just the time, the, the need for immediacy, the lack of other people supervising, not to say that always being micromanaged or being watched leads to anything good, it's not necessarily the case, but I do think that if you're the only person or there's only one person making decisions, it's possible that more uh, inaccuracies might slip by. Firstly, because everybody at a certain point develops a little blind spot. It's material that there might be something they're missing. It's very important to have somebody else. Like what happened with a book and their editor, even if an author is very accomplished, they still need an editor just to see things that the original author might not have spotted. So I do think that filters and controls are important. Beyond that, just having a sense of responsibility, um, individual responsibility as a journalist and individual responsibility as the owner of a specific media outlet and understanding what their purpose is. For example, you can build a news website with the sole purpose of informing in an unbiased way, and that's perfect, but you can also build a web website with the sole purpose of getting hits, making money, and shocking people, and bringing eyeballs to your content, which is also valid. It's just a different style, but as a consumer, you do need to understand what's behind what you're seeing. You have to take everything that seems to be a little bit um, that seems to go beyond the facts with a grain of salt. It's very interesting that we have been discussing commentary so uh, so often during this conversation. Commentary tends to be 
very black and white. Rarely does somebody that's very middle of the road have their own op-ed column. It's not something that they they tend to be interested in. Normally, when somebody's giving an opinion, it tends to be a very favorable or a very disfavorable opinion. And that also tends to cause what you were saying, for instance, people that might dislike a particular candidate or president. It's very bizarre to me, but because in real life, every individual you come across has uh, some good things about them and some bad things about them. Everybody has something uh, to be admired and something to be not admired. That's just human nature. Everybody has their ups and their downs. So I find it very bizarre that people find that their candidate is a god, a delight, a treat, fantastic, beautiful, perfect, our savior. And the person they don't like is a demon, a horror, a terror, the, the end of, of society. I mean, and that can go either way. That's that's the opinion on, on both sides of the, of the political spectrum, uh, which is a little bit strange because everybody, I mean, no matter how much you might like or dislike a person, they might be supportive of uh, specific um proposition or policy or idea that is not in line with what you like, but because you like the person, you're just assuming that every last thing the person does is either terrible or extraordinary. And that's not really the case. And certainly extreme commentary does not help because it just reaffirms or highlights that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, you're in the courthouse a lot. So we're going to go back there for a little bit. Do you find that these preconceived biases are attached to attorneys and judges as they make their cases and the people um, that make the decisions? Do you find that, that the bias of those people are really playing an, a role and an effect on the outcomes in the court? You know, I have heard that that is a, a very overarching belief that there is a lot of, of um, prejudice and biases at play in any kind of decision. To be honest, not only have I not seen that at all, but in fact, I was surprised to not see that at all because I entered this line of work with that idea. I thought, okay, surely I'm going to see a lot of this. And in reality, I would say that that has not been my experience at all. If anything, attorneys are very good, for instance, at filtering out any member of a jury that might be biased against a client or a situation. That's normally uh, what is done. Questions from attorneys to juries aim to weed out anybody that might be very, very pro someone or against someone. So no, actually I was surprised to find that at least here, that was not my experience. I know that that is what is um, commonly believed and that is what is normally reported on. I mean, I can't say that it doesn't happen. I'm sure that it does in some cases, but personally I have never witnessed anything of the sort. If anything, I would say that I'm surprised at the degree of uh, objectivity that goes into this, especially because what is followed is normally not anybody's uh, opinion, really. There's really a set of rules, and normally a verdict boils down to something that is pre-written, like, for is this condition being met? Is this other condition being met? It's more like going down a checklist. Human emotions are really not as much as play as, as I would have assumed. At least that's been my experience. Interesting. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't had the experience, but obviously we hear a lot about court cases and, and things, uh, you know, judges doing certain things and, and not doing other things based on their preconceived notions and, and biases and based on favoritism to certain lawyers that they like or don't like. So it's kind of interesting to get that insider experience that you have uh, not having that happen. Uh, is there anything else that you really like to talk about? We've had a very great conversation. I, I think that the audience has gotten a lot out of this. And, um, you know, I always at the end of, of any conversation, I'll ask you to give two or three actionable tips and tricks that somebody can do to improve their life, create a new tomorrow today, and activate their vision for a better world. And and based on this conversation, what are some things that you would suggest to the audience that they can do in order to get more information and less opinion, more fact and less reactionary response to, uh, to programming? I think that the very last, one of the very last things that we discussed was a very good tip in general, which is to understand what it, that whatever um, person or situation is being described is never all terrible or all wonderful. And if a piece of news is telling you, no, 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 this was all terrible, all terrible, there's something wrong there. Or if it's something that's saying what you're reading or this thing or this person or this candidate or this policy is all wonderful, that's also not to be trusted. Anything that is being described as 100% awful or 100% excellent is surely misleading and a little bit more research needs to be done into that is what I think. Awesome. Anything else? Well, the other thing is to apply that also to your personal life, like in, in normal situations when encountering new friends, meeting new people, starting a new job, um, any situation you may find yourself in, uh, you might find people that that you at first you might not enjoy meeting you might say oh that seems like a difficult person give them time everybody has something good about them everybody has something that you might find pleasing everybody can become a friend eventually i think it's just a matter of waiting it out or digging a little deeper but absolutely yeah you know it's interesting once you um strive to understand somebody it's hard not to like the yeah. person you know even if you don't agree with their position or their their uh their thoughts, at least you understand where they're coming from. And typically, most people are coming from the same place that we are with the same wants and needs and desires in life. And, uh, and it's hard to not like those people just because they might think a little differently or believe a little differently than you. So um, you have a book, why don't you give the uh, the topic of your book and a little bit about it so that the audience can get an idea and sense of who you are. And if they want to, um, to work with you or take a look at that book, how can they get a hold of you? Absolutely. So the book I wrote is titled Choose to Prevail. And in fact, I have it right here. This is a book that is meant to help the reader find insights that might help them overcome challenges, be they big or small. When I say big challenges, I'm referring to maybe the loss of a loved one or any situation that is causing them great grief. And when I say minor uh, challenges, I might mean something as 
minor really as encountering a lot of traffic or perhaps uh, feeling a little bit uh, uncomfortable speaking in public, which is something many people struggle with. So many different types of struggles are addressed in the book. Uh, the way the book touches upon that is by suggesting ways to shift your perspective in regard to what is causing you grief and also suggesting a few actionable steps. And in fact, there is one chapter that touches upon uh, the fact that all of us have something in common, some things in common. So no matter who we may meet, even though they might seem tremendously different, there is always some common ground to be found. So that's something that we should uh, keep in mind, no matter who it is that we're encountering. And if anybody cares to buy the book, it's available on all platforms, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Target.com, Walmart.com, wherever they might enjoy buying their, their books. And uh, thank you so much. Absolutely. This was a, a wonderful conversation. I like uh, beating up the media. Uh, no offense to you, because, you know, <laughs> um, I, I, I just believe that, that the media in general has a lot of soul searching that they need to do and, uh, and return to an integritous kind of way of, of doing their business so that we as the citizens who are uh, are trying to learn about what's going on in our country can have a, 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 an actual sense of what it, that is instead of this theoretical, conceptual, polarized step. So I appreciate you coming on and, and uh, I hope you didn't take any of that as personally beating you up, but. Uh, <laughs> um, oh no, I enjoyed our conversation so much and I agree so much with much of what you said, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate that. So this has been another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I am your host, Ari Gronich. Remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, comments below so that we can start this conversation and really move along forward our society so that we could create a new tomorrow today and activate our vision for a better world. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to the next time. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website, createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.